0: Are you
1: with really the last of the
0: dodos? Yes, I'm really the last of the dodos. Hi, I'm Holly Fry, and this is Drawn: The Story of Animation. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if you listen to the first episode, we kind of gave you the breakdown of how an animated show gets made. But today, we're gonna go back a little bit further in history. Even though animation is a relatively new art compared to say painting or sculpting, it still has a really rich history. And I wanted to talk about some of those early moments that you might not know about before characters like Mickey and Bugs really ran the board as the famous cartoon characters. Now, just to set expectations, this is definitely not what I would call a comprehensive history of early animation. That would take us months and possibly years to discuss. But I just want to hit on a couple of key moments that really helped create the environment where those flagship characters could be created. Because even as early animators were figuring out how to use a series of frames to create a sense of movement, they were also experimenting with storytelling and character and how to capture an audience's attention and create that magic that was so much the focus of episode one. First of all, the thing that's worth knowing is that a lot of people in the animation industry love animation history. It's just part
2: of the culture of it. I think animation is, and partly why I love it so, so much, is when you get into it, you're joining this tradition. It's a guild.
0: That's Michael Oline, chief marketing officer for Cartoon Network, Adult Swim, and Boomerang. If you're a fan of classic cartoons, you have probably tuned into Boomerang from time to
1: time. Jerry would rather use his charm to lure a feline foe into his trap,
3: but when necessary, he is quite handy with a short piece of pipe. Now see
2: more of your favorites, Tom and Jerry on Boomerang from Cartoon Network. It's all coming back to you. It's a little bit like shoemaking. Like, there's skills, like, real practical skills that are handed down. So people today still, with the fanciest tools imaginable, still have Preston Blair's notes from 19-whatever, 40-something, from Disney, hand-drawn notes about how to make a rubber ball bounce or how to do a facial expression.
4: And join in, everybody.
0: Preston Blair was an animator for Disney and MGM, and he started in the 1930s, and he worked for decades. He created iconic pieces like the Sorcerer's Apprentice Mickey Mouse and the Hippo and Alligator segments for Fantasia. — And he worked long enough that he even was part of the Flintstones later on in his career.
2: And that stuff is passed. it's like sourdough. Like, there has to be a starting yeast or whatever that is. And people pass the knowledge down. So it's a tradition. Everyone in it is interested in it.
0: But before it became part of a trade tradition, early animation in many ways informed all of early cinema.
3: Okay, here's my soapbox spiel. The reason why animation is so essential, really to understanding cinema, is animation predates cinema.
0: That's Eddie Von Mueller. He is an animation historian and a professor at Emory University.
3: There are two ways of making moving pictures. There's the way of making movie pictures that most of us are familiar with, which is I point a camera at an event that's happening in the real world, and I make a fragmentary recording of it. Right. The camera breaks time into 24 chunks a second, and then I can string it back together and I can replay an event. Now, that kind of motion picture is born in the late 19th century, but it's born later than animation. So the principle of animation, which does something very different instead of reconstructing or recording time What animation does is it creates time. It creates motion and event and action that never happened in the real world. And it's the original cinema. So, what's fascinating to me is how this mechanism, the mechanism of animation, which predates recorded cinema, how it so quickly became eclipsed by recorded cinema and kind of shoved to the sides. The genesis of animation and the genesis of newspaper cartoons is simultaneous. The labor force that makes animation possible is going to come from a generation or two of young guys who see these newspaper strip cartoonists becoming rich and famous. Right. This is a period of time where learning how to draw cartoons quickly was a viable road to an income. And the opposite is true now. Now, if you want to starve, be a cartoonist. Um, 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 for the poor.
0: One of those early lucrative cartoons was called The Yellow Kid. And that was a comic strip that ran primarily in the 1890s. And it became so popular that William Randolph Hearst hired its creator, Richard F. Outcole, away from his job at New York World and gave him a lot more money to run that strip in Hearst's New York Journal American. The Yellow Kid also had an incredibly successful series of merchandise tie-ins and showed the world that comics could be lucrative, although it's still a little unclear whether OutKol made much off of those merchandising deals. There's also a little bit of irony in there, because The Yellow Kid, who was basically this little kid in a, a yellow ensemble, pretty simple, was originally written and drawn as a little bit of a takedown of capitalism. But even though animation has diversified to include a wide range of artistic styles, you can still see that print comics root in modern day shows like The Simpsons or Rick and Morty.
3: So print cartooning is going to provide us with our labor force. It's also going to provide us with our aesthetic, right? You've got kind of these simplified, mostly line drawings. So animation is not just drawn animation. There's a lot of other kinds of animation, but the reason why in the early years, so this is late 1800s, early part of the 20th century, one of the reasons why animation becomes what we all think of now, right, because if you think about, I don't know, what the kids watch these days, Rick and Morty, family guy, they look like print cartoons, right? It's it's a version of drawn animation. So it's the late 19th century vogue for cartooning that, that gives us that aesthetic, and industrial base.
0: One of the key steps in bringing drawings to life was actually getting them to appear as though they were moving. And the man, who is sometimes called the father of American animation, James Stuart Blackton, was one of the earliest experimenters in animation
3: technique. So our first films that feature what we think of as animation come up right at the turn of the century. There's this guy named J. Stuart Blackton. And Blackton is a newspaper cartoonist. Blackton is an early film pioneer.
0: There's actually a little bit of fate to Blackton's story and how his film career began. He was on assignment as a journalist artist when he was sent to interview Thomas Edison and have a look at Edison's Vitascope, which was one of the first film projectors. And Blackton was excited by this new medium of motion pictures. He ended up making several live-action films as a recurring character called the Happy Hooligan. And he did those films first with Edison and then with American Mutoscope and Biograph Company, which was founded by an inventor from Edison's lab named William Kennedy Dixon. Blackton also purchased a vitoscope from Edison, and he started his own production company, the American Vitagraph Company. And it was there that he really started experimenting with animation. And one of the most important results was a short film called Humorous Phases of Funny Faces, which combined live action and animation as the animator's hand is seen drawing people that then come to life. My favorite part is a clown that gets half erased, but he keeps trying to do his tricks. But before all of this, Blackton's career as a performer actually had its roots in vaudeville, where he would do what he called lightning sketches to amaze the crowd.
3: He is also associated with vaudeville. And vaudeville's crucially important, especially when we get up to guys like Bugs Bunny. So vaudeville is this immensely popular American cultural form. And there were these guys who did their act in vaudeville, and what they were, they were quick-draw artists. They did what are called chalk-talk acts, or they called themselves lightning sketchers. And so their act was they'd have, like, an easel or a chalkboard, and they would sort of tell stories and draw cartoons while they were telling the story and make the drawing evolve, and the stories were usually either racist or sexist because, because funny and vaudeville. Blackton had this successful Chalk Talk act. And in 1900, Blackton goes to Thomas Edison's studio and they do a film called The Enchanted Drawing. The Enchanted Drawing is not what we would think of as sort of full animation. But what The Enchanted Drawing is going to do is introduce a couple of ideas that become central to animation. We don't have characters. Because this is kind of a vaudeville act. The idea is I'm going to use stuff I can do with the movie camera to facilitate stuff I can't do on the vaudeville stage and create, like, enhanced vaudeville. So the enchanted drawing in 1900, though, what makes me think of it as really kind of the first American animation is it establishes that animation is drawing, that animation has this kind of vaudeville aesthetic and that animation is magic. The idea that animation is a form of magic is part of the DNA of American entertainment in the animated form. What's great about animation is because it's not recorded. It's not setting up a camera and making people act things out. I'm not limited by physics. I'm not limited by logic. I'm not limited by all of the tawdry things that make real life dull. I can kind of um, open it to wonder and enchantment.
0: Next, I want to touch on Max Fleischer. Fleischer is a name that comes up right alongside Walt Disney's when people talk about animation in the early 20th century because he was that prolific. Betty Boop is his creation, and she was often joined on screen by other characters, including Popeye the Sailor Man and another Fleischer creation, Coco the Clown. And one of the techniques invented by Fleischer that's still used today is rotoscoping. And this allows the motion of a live human or animal to be traced over frame by frame so that when you run those frames together, you create smooth, natural movement in animated characters. Rebecca Sugar, the creator of Steven Universe, is a big fan of early animation. And she describes a time that
4: Fleischer used this technique to great effect.
1: Oh, I'm going down to St. James'
4: Inferno. One of my favorite cartoons of all time is uh, the Betty Boop version of Snow White, which has this incredible sequence where Coco the Clown turns into this strange ghost that's rotoscoped to... Cab Calloway's dancing is rotoscoped for this ghost, but he doesn't look like a person. He doesn't have a torso. He's just, like, legs and arms and a head, but he's moving like a person, Uh, and he's singing St. James Infirmary, and it's just great. It's so cool. Uh, It... The first time I saw it, I just fell in love with that sequence.
1: Now when I
4: Put
3: on a
1: back and And of course, Coco the Clown, which uh, Max Fleischer combined live action and animation and early pioneering work in that regard.
0: That's animation historian Jerry Beck. He's also a producer and a professor at CalArts in Los Angeles.
1: And those cartoons are still funny and still classic today. So if you somehow see any cartoons that are labeled Out of the Inkwell or Coco the Clown, Max Fleischer, check them out. (laughs) I talked
0: with Jerry to find out even more about the cartoons that were delighting audiences in the early days of American animation. Jerry has worked for Nickelodeon and Disney. He's also written more than 15 books on animation history. He shared with us a quick list of cartoons that were popular well before Mickey Mouse hit the scene in the 1920s.
1: So when Mickey became a star, he took the mantle away from Felix the Cat. Felix the Cat was kind of the big cartoon star of the 1920s, the silent era drawn by the wonderful Otto Mesmer, was the artist behind that. Really, really great character animation, early, early, you know, use of that. I mean, back in those days, just moving the characters, a penning character was thrilling enough for an audience. So to actually have them emote in any way was was a little bonus extra back in the 20s. Other great characters from the 1920s... Um, Well, what Disney was doing, he was uh, not famous yet. He was still an underdog guy, but he did these Oswald the Lucky Rabbit cartoons. And those were really a precursor to the Mickey Mouse cartoons. And before that, he also combined live action and animation. He was inspired by, by Max Fleischer. Max had Coco the Clown come out of the inkwell and be a cartoon character in the live action real world. So Disney flipped it and had his live action little girl go into the cartoon world.
0: That live-action little girl that Jerry mentioned was a character named Alice. The Alice comedies, as they were known, featured a little girl named Alice, not the Lewis Carroll character, although there are some similarities. And Alice entered animated worlds and interacted with the characters there. The first Alice short was made in Kansas City, Missouri, in 1923, when Walt and his longtime collaborator, Ub Iwerks, were at the laugh studios. That studio went bankrupt not long after, but soon, Walt was in Los Angeles and was able to start making the Alice comedy series. From 1923 to 1927, nearly 60 Alice comedies were made, and the lead character had been played by four different child actresses. So much of the innovation at this time involved humans interacting with drawings. But one such instance, a vaudeville act, is lauded by animation fans and people that work in the industry as the apex of that idea. Here's Rebecca Sugar.
4: There's this theme of magic in animation, which when you look at old animation from the 20s and 30s and 40s, I think that connection was more obvious because... People still remembered when it was just a simple magic trick or a stage show. Some of the, some of the really earliest stuff from Windsor McKay, some of the first animation ever. Uh, Gertie the Dinosaur is one of the first animated films ever, was part of a stage act where he would interact with the characters he had animated and he, he would be throwing uh, an apple, which would become like a pumpkin, which would be fed to this dinosaur. Uh, it's magic, it's magic, it's all magic, which I think is really beautiful. <laughs>
0: The dinosaur was created, as Rebecca mentioned, by virtuoso animator Windsor McKay in 1913. And if you've ever been to Disney's Hollywood studios and you have seen that giant dinosaur that's just sort of randomly there in the middle of the park, that is also an ice cream counter. That's a nod to Gertie. Once again, here's historian Eddie von Mueller.
3: Animation. We love animation. Many people love animation. Because it's animation, because we have this idea that some crazy guy painstakingly drew all of this stuff. And McKay was that crazy guy. He did not use cells. Cells are sheets of translucent plastic that we use in animation to make life bearable. He redrew with slight incremental changes. Thousands and thousands. He had one assistant. He did this with thousands of drawings. There are very few people ever to work in this business that could draw as fast, as clean and as well as McKay. So one of the things that McKay understands with Gertie is that we're interested in how animation gets made. We're interested in animation as a kind of artwork, even if we don't think of animated films as art, and most people never have. But there is a, kind of craftsmanship, a kind of material quality that we like, he also acknowledges in Gertie the Dinosaur that like every other kind of cinema, animation is going to work best by providing us characters that we identify with. Early motion pictures didn't have stars. Actors were completely anonymous until 1912. We had very few close-ups. So usually all you could see of the person wasn't their face. It was their costume. Early cinema is not a cinema of personalities, right? Some people called it a cinema of attractions. It was just like a series of like cool novelties. But right around the same time that the rest of the world of moviemaking is turning to stars and performers and saying, you know what? The audience wants to identify these, with these people. The audience wants to like these people. McKay does that and so he has designed Gertie to be endearing you've seen it right it's charming, right so what animal does she remind you of
0: she's like a dog
3: she's exactly like a dog she wags her tail she pants she fetches what animal in the movies is easier to make people love than a flipping dog we love dogs
0: Gertie utterly captivated audiences, and the genesis of McKay's choice to animate a dinosaur actually came, according to Jerry Beck, from the fact that people couldn't, truly couldn't believe that he was as skilled an artist as he was.
1: Before Gertie, he did a cartoon animation of of his comic strip, Little Nemo, Little Nemo in Slumberland, and... It, it, you could see the character from his comic strip come to life and move. And it was very simple. It was just the character moving and really not doing anything, not much of a story or, or anything. And it was part of a, a vaudeville act that he was doing. But people, there was a, he, the one criticism he got was people thought he was such a good animator and, they, they, and he drew so realistically and animated so perfectly without the tricks of the trade we have today, you know, pre-shooting with live action film or this or that. None of that. He was just a natural born guy who can move a human figure that looked realistic with drawing. And so people thought there must be some trick to that that can't you know, you you know, what's your what's your secret? So he made the next film about a dinosaur because nobody could say he traced a dinosaur or he photographed a dinosaur. There is no such thing. So that's that's you know, it was it was even more miraculous.
0: And while Gertie might have been chosen so Windsor McKay could prove that he wasn't tracing or cheating in any other way, he did something with her animation that served as a bridge for the people who watched to truly believe in her as a living character. Eddie describes this particular design feature.
3: There's this great moment when when Gertie does something truly extraordinary, and it's not interacting with a real person. She breathes. Animation is labor-intensive and time-consuming. And we can see when we look at Gertie, this is not a photographed world. It's black and white. There's very few details. There's, there's very little. The, the world is kind of flat. But Winsor McKay somehow knew to make Gertie's sides rise and fall as if she were breathing. And that moment of unnecessary Lifeness, aliveness, that moment of unnecessary aliveness lets us forget all the other ways in which it's just a cartoon. And you can think about a moment that we see in lots of contemporary cartoons, right, where they'll show a close up of a cute character's face with the big eyes and like reflections in the eyes moving just a little bit. Narratively, it's meaningless. It's not essential to story, but what it is is it's a token of life in something that I recognize as not being alive. If you look at any of Pixar's Luxo Junior shorts, right, where they make this little desk lamp into into a character... (laughs) Those moments in which life betrays itself as alive, in something that my eyes tell me cannot be real. That's the moment of magic. Character's important. Characters create create identification. Characters also create an opportunity for the whole animation industry to just explode after Gertie. Characters really vital. But McKay's intuitive understanding that the tells that would make this patently artificial scene become irresistibly animate, that's a watershed moment. There's nothing like it before. And it's something that a lot of animators later would forget. But when we look at those animators that become sort of the the greats, or at least whose names become associated with greatness. It is frequently that kind of attention to those details that create that wonderful collision, that collision between, I know that's just a drawing, but I know that drawing is alive.
0: That's the buy-in, right?
3: Yeah. It's also, it denies you freedom as a viewer, right? It happens automatically. I'm not in control of that reaction, So it's like, oh, they got me.
0: (laughs) That idea of McKay's to bring subtle but realistic detail to Gertie is something that we now see in animation all the time. Pixar films are masterful at baking in eye blinks, for example, for their characters. And those add depth and they make the audience subconsciously identify with the character even if that character on screen is something that couldn't possibly exist. Like an imaginary friend.
2: What exactly are you
1: supposed to be? You know what's unclear? I'm mostly cotton candy, but shape-wise, I'm part cat, part elephant, part dolphin. Dolphin?
4: You gotta remember, when Riley was three, animals were all the rage.
0: The other thing that modern animation owes to Gertie is, well, sort of everything, at least in terms of how studios run. When I asked Jerry to name the five most pivotal moments in animation history, Gertie was his first pick because in some ways it actually launched the industry.
1: The first one would be Gertie the Dinosaur, which really put the idea of cartoons on the map. Uh, that cartoons in theaters or, or the idea of, of it inspired the first animation studio, the Hearst Studio, the, they call the International Studio that started in New York around 1915 or so, which was the first studio to departmentalize the process of making a cartoon. You know, there's a story guy, there's people who ink the cartoon in, there's the photographer. Instead of one person doing it, it's, it's you know, turned into a, a division of labor. And so that's, that's one of the things that Gertie the Dinosaur did.
0: Gertie came out in 1913, around the time Walt Disney would have been 12 years old. And it definitely had an impact on Disney. But of course, Walt would go on to far surpass Windsor McKay as a household name. And while one of Walt's most famous quotes when talking about his success in entertainment is, it was all started by a mouse... As we know, based on the Alice comedies, Mickey wasn't his first big animation project. In fact, Mickey wasn't even his first little round animated character.
2: Oswald the Lucky Rabbit was an animated cartoon character created by Walt and Ub uh, Iwerks for Universal, where he was a prominent character in the 1920s and 30s.
0: You'll even sometimes hear people refer to Oswald as Mickey's big brother. And while talking with Michael Labrie, Director of Collections and Exhibitions for the Walt Disney Family Museum, he gave me a quick version of Oswald's story.
2: He was created by what was known at the time as Walt Disney Studios in 1928. Universal claimed that Oswald belonged to them and wanted Walt to take a budget cut on his work while informing him they had made offers to members of their team to join their new office in New York. Um, Walt turned down the offer and began working on a concept for a new animated character on the train back from New York and ultimately came up with the idea of, you know, a mouse. And uh, the character became, of course, Mickey, although he wanted to name it Mortimer. And Lillian said no. (laughs) She ruled.
0: That Lillian that Michael just referred to was Walt Disney's wife, And here is Lillian describing that train ride where Mortimer was born and then quickly became Mickey.
4: When he lost Oswald, he
0: just got thinking what would make a cute character, and we were coming home on the train from New York after he'd lost his character. And he was talking about uh, different things, kittens, and there were cats, and there was this and that and the other. A mouse was also cute, and he kept talking about a mouse. So that's where he... uh, Originated, Mickey Mouse was on the train coming home all by himself without talking to anybody. He just decided that was a cute idea. Oswald became one of those things that old-school animation and Disney fans yearned to see back in the Disney fold. And in 2006, they got their wish. In a historic entertainment deal, the Disney company was able to get the rights to Oswald back in a trade deal with NBC Universal. The headline version of it is that Disney CEO Bob Iger traded away a person, ABC and ESPN sportscaster Al Michaels, to get the rights to an animated character, Oswald, and the Oswald films that have been made by Walt Disney. Michael Labrie points out that if you look at Oswald, you really see Mickey's DNA.
2: You look at the characters in Walt's Alice comedies, There are mice, uh, and then there's Felix the Cat, which was something that looked very much like some of the mice and characters in The uh, Adventure of Alice. If you put long ears on any of those mice, it becomes (laughs) Oswald, really. (laughs) Kind of fascinating, but uh, I think that he just, you know, again, it's, it's sort of nostalgia, I think, and the fact that he was before Mickey...
0: Almost immediately after that trade was completed, Oswald merchandise started appearing, and the Oswald cartoons were released on DVD through the Disney company. In 2010, Oswald appeared in the video game Epic Mickey. And the first time Oswald and Mickey meet in the game, it's not really a joyful family moment. In fact, Oswald is pretty open about how resentful he is that he vanished from history while Mickey got all the accolades, adoration, and merchandise. Oswald even tells Mickey that forgotten characters actually lose their hearts. And then Oswald fantasizes about stealing Mickey's heart using a giant cartoon plunger. But Mickey and Oswald seem to have gotten over their rivalry. Now, Oswald can even be seen walking the streets in Disney's California Adventure Amusement Park in Anaheim, California. He does meet and greets with guests... True confession, I got completely choked up the first time I got my photo taken with Oswald. So, if you're in Disney's California Adventure and you see Oswald strolling around, make sure to say hi. And remember, he's been on quite a journey. After Mickey debuted in 1928, he changed everything for Disney. But the Warner Brothers breakout character, Bugs Bunny, wouldn't appear for another 10 years. And even then, he wasn't really anything like the Bugs we know today. So what was going on with Warner Brothers before that? Eddie Von Mueller takes us back to those early days of Warner Brothers.
3: When I look at the output of studios other than Disney, and this is true of the Fleischer studio, but especially of Leon Schlesinger's animation unit at Warner Brothers, They're going entirely the opposite direction.
0: Live-action film mogul Leon Schlesinger got into animation after two former Disney animators, Hugh Harmon and Rudy Ising, approached him with a character named Bosco, which was eventually licensed through Schlesinger's studio to Warner Brothers. That deal continued for several years in the early 1930s before a falling out led the two animators to take it elsewhere. — Bosco actually starred in the first Looney Tune, a short called Sinkin' in the Bathtub. In the cartoon, Bosco starts out taking a bath, but once he finishes washing up, he encounters all kinds of wackiness as he goes about his day and tries to court a lovely lady. Oh, baby! There were also other characters, both original creations and characters borrowed from common folk tales, such as Rip Van Winkle, who appeared in the Fritz Freeling-directed film Why Do I Dream Those Dreams in 1943. When Fleischer made that move from live action into animation, he was notorious for cutting deals that stipulated really fast turnarounds. He didn't make allowances for animation to take longer than live action.
3: They want to be timely. These guys are going to be making cartoons stupid fast. So much faster than Disney. And Warner Brothers cartoons, many Warner Brothers cartoons, are going to be chock full of references to very current events.
4: Before
0: Mary Melodies became closely associated with Bugs Bunny, it was really a way to showcase music from the Warner Brothers library.
3: So Warner Brothers had their own radio station. Warner Brothers has their own record deal. Warner Brothers has their movie studio. So they'll make a musical and they'll take a song from the musical and send it over to the animation guys to make an animation about it. So these, these are really topical. And they're going to reference political slogans and vaudeville stars and radio catchphrases and current events.
0: Part of the reason that Warner Brothers was so focused on musicals early on was the success of Silly Symphonies at the Disney studio. As part of a way to experiment and try new things, Walt wanted to make musical shorts that each stood on their own. These weren't beholden to the ongoing stories of any characters, and they were initially completely separate from Mickey Mouse.
4: Well, I wanted to have a different pattern from the Mickey Mouse, because when you once get to a thing like that, then everybody wants everything to be the same. More of this, more of this, more of this, you know? So I wanted a different pattern to give me more latitude. And playing with music and doing things with music was intriguing and everything. So I started the silly Symphonies.
3: I have not studied music. I do not know my notes.
0: So Merry Melodies was sort of a response to Silly Symphonies with that more current contemporary feel. All of this creativity, Gertie, Oswald, Bosco, Betty Boop, and everything else that's come up in this episode, laid the groundwork for iconic characters like Mickey and Bugs to emerge. But these older cartoons are actually in danger. When cartoons were being made early on, there wasn't much thought given to ensuring that they were preserved for the future. And as a consequence, even today, there are lost treasures being found all the time. One of Jerry Beck's passions is preservation and restoration of old animation so that these cartoons will be around for years to come.
1: Our preservation program really kind of restarted in the last two or three years, mainly because we were able to raise enough money to do it. And 10 or 50, 20 years ago, uh, I had friends at the UCLA Film Archive, and I would ask them about particular cartoons that I was—I wanted to make sure they were okay. And I heard then, no, that's just the nitrate negative is sitting there. And, you know, one day nitrate negatives are volatile. They'll deteriorate. Horribly, and if you don't do anything to save it, that which really means making a a pristine copy of it, if you don't do anything about it, it's just going to disappear one day.
0: I am so grateful that Jerry and his colleagues are working to save these pieces of history. So next time you see an old cartoon online, keep in mind that someone had to digitize it and possibly restore it to make sure we will always have it. To close out, I want to return to Eddie Von Mueller. As you recall, in the early days of animation, a lot of the experimentation with it involved combining animated figures with live action. And Eddie made a great point during our talk that shows that things have really come full circle to combine those two mediums once again, although now that experience is often seamless.
3: But what's even more interesting is that in the late 20th century and in the 21st century, these two ways of making movies have now merged and they've merged so completely. we were talking Star Wars nerd stuff. um, A movie like The Last Jedi is made in terms of its thinking, in terms of its aesthetics, in terms even of where its workforce is situated and how they operate, it's way more of a cartoon than a live-action film. So we've got these two art forms that are, are evolving side by side over the course of the 20th century, and then they kind of converge. So... For me, and I would think this because I'm an animation guy, for me, I think the only way to really understand um, screen entertainment, theatrical, small screen, at home, whatever, the only way to understand it is through the lens of animation. Now.
0: Oh, boy, I got the last
1: of the Dodos. Yes.
0: episode, there's going to be a lot more about Warner Brothers and the historic production team that Leon Schlesinger put together because that episode is all about Bugs Bunny and his place in our culture. Ooh, and I worked in Space Jam and I got to work with Michael Jordan too, (laughs) Doc. Thanks to all of the guests on today's show. Michael Oline, Eddie Von Mueller, Rebecca Sugar, Jerry Beck, and Michael Labrie. If you'd like to check out Jerry Beck's site about animation history, you can find that at cartoonresearch.com. And we also have to give a very special thank Thanks to the Walt Disney Family Museum for sharing those audio clips of Lillian and Walt Disney with us. If you would like to visit the show online, you can do so at drawnpodcast.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as Drawn Podcast. And you can email us at drawnpodcast at dot